Hey, just a side note. This is going to be our last episode of the year, but we will be back with more episodes at the beginning of 2022. Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of the Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets, where we tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. This episode, we will talk to a few of the bands from the time period that Vagrant took a heavier turn, as well as tell the story of the bled from autumn to ashes and biology. Tucson, Arizona's The Bled are one of those bands that work by controlling chaos. The energy of their first release, Past the Flask, was the talk of the town in its day, and they went on to be a wildly influential band in their scene. I sat down with Jeremy Ray Talley from the group to discuss their run on Vagrant. Oh, the other voice you'll hear in this conversation is once again super producer of this podcast, Jesse Cannon. So tell me about how did you come to start working with Vagrant? Because I know that you worked with Fiddler, with Amy. Yes. Uh, yes. Or then, was it when she was with Vagrant that brought you over no. there? Okay. No, she had just started Fiddler and um, she'd only done a couple of, I mean, she did the dashboard EP, I believe, and a couple of other things she did, uh, that recovery EP. And those were two things that really All right. um, got us interested in Fiddler because we'd never heard of them until they contacted us and we looked them up. Uh, and yeah, they, they, uh, we were going to sign with Trevor Phipps from Unearth had a, he was starting a record label and we were in talks with him and, you know, um, it, which is a big deal for us because it was a, you know, a guy from a band that we had heard of and liked. And, uh, shortly thereafter, I guess the way that it worked was Jay from Fiddler got a copy of our EP that we did. Um, he was, I guess, guitar teching from Midtown and those guys got a copy of it from someone. And, you know, he was was with Amy, dating Amy. And so he stumbled across the EP that we did and brought it to Amy and was like, we should sign these guys. And we he contacted it contacted us shortly thereafter i don't know how we got our email or anything like that especially back then you know in the early 2000s where it wasn't just readily available everywhere and right. we were right. we were nothing we were just just shy above being a local band uh we had played you know maybe california once and texas once but we were literally just a, a, a local tucson band really and uh, so just by chance he stumbled across it through through that band midtown and um yeah signed us and got us on to Fiddler, and then we did our first record, first full-length, Pass the Flask, with Fiddler, of course. And um, shortly thereafter, not to get it, make it all dramatic, but uh, we left Fiddler before our contract was up. And, uh, you know, we had... Um, we weren't super satisfied with what was going on with Fiddler at the time. Um, in our opinion, they were, you know, dumping a lot of money into you know, Juliet and the Licks and stuff like these projects that they had that we, they thought were going to be, you know, their, their big money makers. And they weren't really, we, they kind of lost attention to us. And we were on the road 10 months out of the year at that time, literally 10 months out of the year. So we found a little, I guess, I don't want to say a loophole because it was legal. We found a little thing in our contract that said that they, you know, they had to account to us every quarter or something like that. And they weren't, they hadn't done that. So we sent them the 30 day notice of, Hey, you guys are in quote unquote breach of contract and we are want to resolve it or we want to move on. They never got back to us within that 30 day window. So, uh, so we left. I've even done that thing of like sending, you know, we've had to send that like, Hey, you haven't paid us. Here's your 30 day notice, <clears throat> but I've never had anybody actually like not 
pay it on the very last day it was due. You know what I mean? Like, do you think they wanted you guys to leave? Absolutely not. They wanted us oh, to do okay. another record with them. They, and the reason I know that is because we we left Fiddler and signed with Vagrant, and about two months later, uh, while we were in Louisville, Kentucky, we got a <laughs> we got served papers from Fiddler, and we had to we got sued by them basically for breach of contract, and it was a big messy. Just so I understand the the actual legit, because this this kind of stuff is fascinating to me. Uh, the, like, okay, so basically, you sent your thirty day, you know, your your um, what's what's that what's that letter called? Do you have a lawyer send? They sent them a legal documentation that they had thirty days to pay you, which is required by the contract that you signed, and then they did not pay you within that thirty days. And so, in theory, at that point, you're fr- you're officially free agents, right? And so you guys go and sign to Vagrant. Did Vagrant have any concerns about this at the time? We, we explained to them what happened. And, uh, you know, we were talking to other labels at the time and Vagrant was, they wanted us, you know, they, they, they said, you know, they asked us what we wanted. We told them and they agreed to it. And they didn't have much concern about the legal aspects. They didn't know that we were going to get sued, of course. What and then were, uh, to their credit, were, they helped us out a lot as far as legal fees and stuff like that goes, which is a whole other story in itself as, you know. Um, uh, well, so, okay. So um, so on what grounds did they sue you? Because they, 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 were, they were in violation of the contract. Correct. Um, they disagreed with that. They said that uh, that was a formality, basically. I, I, it's so hard. You know, this is 2004. So I'm just, just kind of digging. But I believe it was, to their eyes, a formality because we left their record label have like using a loophole that of uh, them not the lawsuit correcting. was a formality. Yes, um, uh, kind of like they needed to save face, sort of. That the, that the breach of contract was a formality. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, and that we owed them another record. So basically, we got we got deposed. We had to go to California with lawyers and their lawyers and be in the same room. And and uh, it was a it was a mess and it was very expensive and cost us. Essentially, we won the case with the caveat that we had to give them a point on our record that we did with Vagrant. Oh, lame. And uh, give put their. I think they, I don't know if this went through or not, but they wanted us to include their logo on the, which I don't think that happened, but that was one of the things they wanted. But um, and though we won the um, court case, the legal fees were so expensive that um, they basically won because they were like, we're still paying money to Vagrant to, we, we haven't, you know, we, we sold a lot of, a generous amount of copies of, of that of the two records we did with them. So basically Vagrant advanced you money for legal fees that then you had to recoup. Yeah. And we haven't yet. That's how far back we are. That's the thing that like anytime, like we've talked about, or I've had friends who in bands who talked about like kind of going to war with an old record label or something like that is just kind of going like, well, you got to make that calculation. Is it worth the legal fees just for, you know, like, are you going to use up any potential profit you might find paying lawyers and just it sounds like you guys have definitely definitely got the short end of the stick on that well this is this will be this gives me something new and interesting to talk about when we interview amy next week we did speak to amy about her side but lawyers are very particular people and she did not want to discuss it do you feel or did you at the time feel like supported by vagrant in that i mean obviously they were willing to advance you the 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 legal fees but like did you feel like they had your back 
Because you hadn't even had yeah, you even did. gone into you hadn't gone into the studio yet to do the next record. No, we hadn't. Um, I don't believe so. Anyway, we might have. I don't think so. It's like a hell of a introduction to the new, the new relationship of the label and band. So. Um, and, you know, Vagrant, I, I would say, was very supportive in the sense that they took care of our legal fees, which was not cheap. And they did that in good faith, you know, and not without knowing how successful a new record would be or even hearing demos as to what it, it was going to sound like. So they put that all on the line for us and, and, and helped us. Otherwise, I don't know exactly what we had done. We were kids, you know, getting sued. So how old were you? So I was probably 25, maybe 24. And I'm the oldest one in the band, so... Yeah. So I guess initially, like, what was it about Vagrant that made you guys want to want to team up with them? I, I understand, you know, being unhappy with where you were at, but what was there something specific about Vagrant, yeah, or was it there like was for us? Um, we just kind of go by we just, at the, especially at the time we were just going by who they were working with, what they were doing, and they were just kind of booming at that time. They had, you know, they put out, you know, face to face and and saves the day and dashboard confessional and all these bands that were doing very well thrice we really looked up to you know thrice and and uh they were just working with all these bands that that we knew were doing well and so it seemed like it was a good thing to be a part of especially at that specific time period and i feel like especially in those early years even with courting with doing our record with fiddler um you know we went on we did that record, and then, like I said, we literally just went on tour and never stopped. Like uh, we did from 2004 to 2007, we were going nine to ten months out of the year, and and nonstop. We did Warp Tour three years, three summers in a row. We did Project Revolution just after that, which was a you know seven week long tour, and it was just like you know and support tour after support tour after support. So the, the the train just kept rolling, and we were just going we were just going and going so we definitely caught a sweet little wave um because it was at a time when people bought records this was pre-downloading um well it may have, it may have been like right at the beginning of it when did when did Napster start i got my i remember getting my my sidekick <laughs> t-mobile sidekick i had one. on a specific tour and i know for me that was the dawn of uh this was all pre-ipod so um and th- that was in 2004 so it was shortly thereafter that the internet took over. And I know that um, Found in the Flood record did like 14 or 15,000 copies the first week. And that was 2005. And then for our next record, Silent Treatment, we did like 1,800 copies this, the second week. And that was 2007. So that was the, <laughs> that was the drop-off. Yeah. Okay. That, that's crazy. So tell me about going into that first record with Vagrant. Because you did it with Trombino, right? Yeah, and that was a big caveat of signing with um, with Vagrant. Is they you know, they were like, you know, make a list of three or four producers that you want, and we put Mark Trombino on there because we, uh, being from Arizona, I think we're huge marks for Jimmy World. We really like the way his records sound. We really like the way he, you know, and this was before it was so common to do like electronic sampling. And uh, yeah, I, know, I remember weird. When- when Clarity came out, it was just kind of like, what the fuck? <laughs> Is this the first Trombino Vagrant record? I believe it was. First one on Vagrant, yes. You know, we liked all his his Jimmy World records, and we knew that he could do, uh, you know, bands that had a little bit more edge to them than Jimmy World because he had done, like, the Finch record that was really popular, and uh, he'd done, you know, you know Blink-182, Dude Ranch, and, and then, of course, his band, 
Drive Like Jehu. You know, we had, those were all big reasons why we wanted Trombino on that list. And they got us, they got in touch with him and he, he did it, you know. And now he has a donut shop. So tell me about uh, making that record. Did you make it in LA with at Trombino's place? Yeah, we did. We made it in LA. Um, I can't remember the name of the studio where we did drums, but it was, I guess, the drummer from Stone Temple Pilots studio. I can't remember the name of it, but it's a very popular studio for drums. What's that? Great studio. Yeah. And, um, and then the re- did you do the rest at Music Friend? Yeah, I think so. That sounds right. Yeah, whatever um, Trombino used generally was the where we did the rest of the record. And then it was mixed somewhere else. I don't remember where he mixed it either. But yeah, he did uh, in what what I thought was a good job engineering and uh, mixing and, and, and that stuff. I feel like the only thing that really didn't really get to where it needed to be was producing. I don't really think he had a clear idea of what to do with a band like us. Uh, as far as like generating ideas and letting us know if something was going on too long, you know, that, that outside perspective that a producer brings to the table. He just kind of retracted the songs the way that we wrote them in the, in the practice spot. And, um, and to, to his credit, we went in there very unprepared in the sense that we went in there with, 10 songs we didn't have any there was no there was no fat to trim is that is that his mo that he's more of just an engineer or is that just you think it was i don't usual to you guys I, I, yeah to my knowledge i thought that he had had worked very closely with jimmy world and a lot of the sampling and stuff like that was his ideas and stuff like that and we didn't get that out of him we got a great sounding record but like i said it's just kind of what we went in there with is what happened so how was i mean uh just looking at your uh at your wikipedia which i'm going to be completely honest and reading about you as 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 we go that that album did really well that oh yeah it did and it came out and like what was the response to it like i mean i it charted so that's cool but like did the people who liked the first record like get on board with it it was kind of 50 50 actually because it was such a departure from what our first record was our first record we didn't write that as a record we wrote it and that was just the songs that we were playing live and uh they came they it came out like that it came out with this edge to them and uh i think bo's lack of experience and our lack of experience as a band really kind of had this magic to it in the sense that we came out with this really raw crazy record that not a lot of people were trying you know not a lot of bands were trying to do at that time and um it just kind of it was just kind of magic and then i think fans were expecting the part two of that and we wanted to expand on on our sound we wanted to have singing parts and we wanted to have these bigger rock sounding songs without a bajillion riffs crammed in to two and a half minutes you know what i mean we wanted um more classically structured songs and you know we were just trying new stuff yeah and there's a whole when we go ahead no, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. Well, I was just saying, when I said we, we went in underprepared with exactly 10 songs and no fat to trim, we like put everything into those songs. And we were just kind of tapped out creatively at that point. We were just like, this is the record. This is what's going to happen. This is what we got, you know, uh, because Baker wanted a record out because it had been since 2003 that we recorded Past the Flask. And it was 2005 at that point. It's been coming up a lot lately because we just did a for our, our band's Patreon, we've been doing a kind of deep dive podcast and we did one on Four Minute Mile. And we were talking about how debut records are really unique, both good and both good and bad. That, you know, it really is 
the kind of purest expression of, especially if you're a live band, like a touring band, like the purest expression of, of, of that time. And you have time to like work those songs out live and play them for people and see what works and what doesn't work, whether you take that into consideration or not. And it's just it's impossible right. to, to replicate. You know what I mean? Like you, there's just something that's just really magical and unique. And it's, it's, strange to me as we've been talking about this more often that music fans haven't seemed to figure that out <laughs> you know at least to a certain degree of just like well no, you can't make your first record again nobody can no nobody's ever done it like it's impossible the only way you can is if no one pays any attention to it at all and then it's like kind of like it's not your first record that's like the elusive jimmy world pop punk yes yes album. no one's really heard that's a great point I, I think that that's a cool that's similar to like what we did where it was like making like a very raw record really fast and then going to work with uh someone who can make the the band sound m- more like an album and less like a and then and then after you do your debut you get thrown into a schedule then it's like oh you have to tour on this record for 10 months and then you have to take three months off and then you have to record again and then it's like that for the <laughs> pretty much the rest of your, your it's a very career. Sch- it's a very schizophrenic thing. And then it gets even more so when you try to like put relationships or family into that, that mix. And then it becomes even more complicated. I think it's, it's funny though. Your era, Jeremy, I feel like Matt, your era is leading up to that. Your era, Jeremy is like one of the main, like where you had so much pressure to stay on the road all the time. And that was there. Whereas now that era has died. And there's that weird thing that now everybody just puts out a constant stream of singles all the time. And so it's totally different. And, but like, I think particularly your era of musician had this pressure that like the touring could never stop or else the sky was going to fall and your career is over. Yeah. And that's how it was. So interesting. Cause like, that and it's also a matter of um, when you get into it and it's good, it's easy to get into state to want to stay in that cycle as well. So it's not just the pressure from the labels because we were getting really good tours with bands that we loved and it was a blast. You know what I mean? So that was part. That's fifty percent of it as well. Um, yes, we had to do that because in our contract it says you have to two or ten months on this record before you can make a new one. But also we were, like I said, you know, early twenties and all of a sudden there's a, everything just kept building. You know, there was a warp tour and then we got an offer to do a tour with a band like the used who were doing theaters instead of little clubs. And then, you know, the next thing happens and the Mm -hmm. next thing happens. And, and, um, it was just this, it's a whirlwind that you, you're only, I mean, you know that you're in it, but you're just kind of going with it at the same time because that's a blast. It's fun. And unlike, you know, a lot of bands, we didn't have family obligations. Uh, We didn't have, we didn't care about girlfriends. We didn't care, you know, unbeknownst to us, we were losing friends and losing relationships. And when you're two or 10 months out of the year, and you have, you know, you do a five-week tour and you have a week off, all of a sudden there's a gas station on a corner that wasn't there before. And one of your friends have moved away that you didn't know because you just don't talk to them regularly. Yeah, you know, and then you, you have that like realization that. when you roll into town that life went on without you. Well, you were gone. Yeah, <laughs> life moves on. Yeah. It's like, wait, what do you mean? You you guys still went to work and stuff when I was when I was out of town? But I was Yeah, people yeah. get married and you know, it's all that stuff. So, so is that the was that the wow. cycle that kept on kept on rolling for the Found in the Flood, like when that record came out? Because it's yeah, I would say from 2004 till we took a break finally in 2008 that that was 
the whirlwind we were swept up in for better and for, for, for better. Was that a, uh, a official like self-mandated taking a break kind of like? Uh, yes and no. Like I said, after, after we did silent treatment and the kind of wheels fell off the wagon as far as record sales go, we had also accrued this credit card debt that was mounting and mounting and mounting. And we were not smart with money. We were not smart with money and we didn't adapt to the new world of touring, which when downloading started, guess what? Now your whole way to make money is merch. And that's it. You can't, you can't worry about your guarantee that you're not going to live off your guarantee because up until then guarantees were, were really good for us. And, uh, we, we didn't, yeah, we just didn't adapt to the, the downfall or the, I'm sorry, the download era of being a touring band. And so when 2008 hit, we just kind of burnt out and we like, you know, let's take a break. Let's get some jobs at home and work to pay off this credit card debt. And then we'll revisit this band situation whenever we can. And that's what we did. I'd like to touch on like leading up to that point, like going into do silent treatment and like that whole experience. Cause you, you know, you didn't want to work with Trumbino again, I assume if you weren't feeling happy about it. It wasn't uh, that we were unhappy. We just wanted to do something different. We did just the same as wasn't that we were unhappy with Bo's record past the flask by any means. We loved it. It was just, we want to, we want to try other stuff. We want to get a new sound out of our band and, and try something else. And kind of similarly with, um, with uh, Trumbino, McTurnan was a ba- was a producer that we really liked a lot of the records he had done. He had, he had actually worked with yeah, heavier bands, and and he had worked with um, bands that we knew that had experiences with him that had positive things to say about him. Unlike Trombino, we didn't know we didn't know Jimmy World personally. We didn't know Blink One Eighty Two or Finch or anything like that. We were just going to buy what, the records that we liked. And with McTurnan, we could talk to Census Fail, who had just done a record with them. We were buddies with the Circus Survive guys who had done all their records with him. And uh, we were buddies with Thrice at that point who had done records with him. And, and so it was just a constant like, oh man, McTurnan's great. Salad Days Studio is great. You'll have a great experience and uh, he'll get a good record out of you guys. So we had, you know, we had references for him. And um, when he agreed to do it, it was just like, it just made sense at the time. Did that prove to be true? That you, did you guys have a good time making that record? Uh, yes. Well, I'll say this. We made mistakes. Again, we went in there with the exact amount of songs that we had for the record. And McTurnan is not like Trombino in the sense where he was like, no, you guys need to have some extra stuff. So he was kind enough to give us two weeks in the studio for free to just sit around and write music, which is kind of unheard of, you know, when, uh, and then on top of that, some things happened with Vagrant to where I guess their uh, contract with Interscope was up in the middle of us being in the studio and Interscope had cut all funding to Vagrant. So McTurnan learned of this and learned that he wasn't going to be paid for the record indefinitely. There was no like, oh, you'll get it in six weeks. There was nothing. They were just like, we don't know when you'll get paid. And so he did the record on good faith. And that's amazing. Uh, There's not a lot of people like that that would do that in his position at his level of notoriety and his level of professionalism that would be so giving to to a band that he, you know, he didn't know us from, from, from any band. He, he, he had heard what we did and liked it and said he could make a good record out of it. But beyond that, he didn't owe us or know us or anything. So, and then 
we made mistakes at the studio. We like let his dogs out one night. One of his dogs out one night. We left the door open and his dog got out and he found his dog sitting on the sidewalk waiting for him to come to work in the morning because you live at Salad Days when you record there. And just like things like that were just like dumb mistakes. He said, you know, he had just basically rules that we broke because we were dumb and immature and and um, just not purposely disrespecting him, but just kind of thinking, oh, it'll be okay if we let a band come over and check out what we're doing. Materna will probably never know. And then he, of course, he finds out that we let a band into, into the studio that he didn't know that was on tour that was just passing through Richmond. We let them come over and hang out for a few hours and and uh, he found out. So like we just made mis- like dumb, immature mistakes like that at the studio. Overall, we had a blast because you live at that amazing studio. You have 24-hour access to the control room. So if you get an idea at 2 in the morning and you want to go track it, you can go down and track that idea and he'll check it out in the morning. He was cool with you guys doing that, like just self-tracking yourselves in the middle of the night? Yeah, he showed us how to hit record. And obviously, it wasn't to the actual record. He had like a a, tr- a channel that we could record a guitar part That's on cool. or... Uh, you know, and so a place for to put our ideas down for him to check out in the morning. And then if it was jiving with him and, and we still liked it, we would throw it down on the real record the next day. That's really cool. That's a good way to work. It is. It was very productive in that sense. Uh, we wrote three songs in the studio and only one of those songs made the record. But the fact that we um, got, got that opportunity to just write for a couple of weeks and have that kind of exposure to the control room whenever we wanted. It was very helpful. So uh, tell me about like that record coming out. Was it well-received? I mean, you were talking about the, uh, the whole, like, you know, the, the bottom had fallen out of the music industry by the time it, it came. Yeah. So um, as far as um, record sales go, no, it was not well-received, but people were downloading it. You know, it was, it was at the height of like, just steal whatever you want. And um, so People liked the record. I would say more so they were receiving it more, more, they're receiving it better than they did the initial jump of Found in the Flood, which I said, you know, like I said, where people were expecting something different. And now with um, Silent Treatment, we had kind of, I don't want to say gone back to being this crazy raw band, but we definitely were like, we should write a song that if it doesn't make our heads bang in the practice, in the practice spot, Let's not keep it. You know what I mean? We had that that kind of mindset going into silent treatment. We wanted high energy, fun songs that we would have a, a blast playing live. And then also we would, you know, we say, let's incorporate a couple songs that are expansive and have some room to breathe and uh, show a different a different side of us, but without making that the entire record. We wanted to sprinkle that in the same. So we were more methodical when when putting out Silent Treatment than we were with Found in the Flood, where we're like, let's be a new band almost, you know? Let's do half the record kind of Foo Fighters and Radiohead flavored The Bled versus, and a little bit of Pass the Flask influence, where this is where, like, let's just take everything that we like about playing music and standing on stage live and incorporate that into, into silent treatment. And that's what we did. I I assume then it's like the plan is, you know, stay on the grind, you know, finish the record, go on tour and tour and tour and tour again. But then you were talking. Yeah. We had tours lined up already while we were in the studio. You were talking about uh, how vagrants deal with Interscope went away did that affect this release do you think as far as like promotion and 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 uh it affected it 
as far as yeah, it was very underpromoted. Um, I think we got like shared a full page full page ad in a couple magazines, and um, and this was also at a time where online promotion wasn't as heavy. It wasn't as big big of a deal as it is now, where that's pretty much ninety percent of it is bands working their own social media websites and stuff like that. That didn't really happen then. So um, yeah, it came. I think it affected the promotion of the record, and then um, so here's kind of. What I'll what I'll what I'll say about Silent Treatment and the wheels falling off the wagon is when the day that Silent Treatment came out, we had flown to the UK where we were going to start a tour with Killswitch Engage, and it was a huge tour, all mapped out, and it was going to places we'd never been. It was going to Russia, all these places we were super stoked on. And um, the day, the first day that we do this tour, we play and we play the show in London. And it's just us and Killswitch. We finish, we get off stage, and our manager at the time was like, hey, let's go into the band room and let's talk real quick. We have some things to talk about. And he had sent us to England to do this tour on the faith that Vagrant was going to come through with this um, touring budget for us to help pay for our bus, help pay for us renting our gear and all this stuff. And so this is the day that Silent Treatment came out and he was kind of on the phone with Vagrant and uh, he talked to, I don't remember who it was, maybe Wayne from Vagrant. And Wayne, and, you know, look, our, our manager was like, so what's the deal with the record? And, you know, was like, it's not good. It's under 2,000 copies. I don't remember the number. It's under 2,000 copies. And, you know, our manager was like, yeah, right. What's what's the what's the real number? He's like, no, it's, it's not good. Um, we can't give you any sort of budget right now. Um, we are underfunded. We are underfunded by, you know, we got our funds cut by Interscope. And so there is no budget for you guys. So we flew out there. We played one show. Then we had to, to cancel that tour while we're there. So I had to go in. We had to go into Killswitch's room, basically like, you know, <laughs> our tails tucked and be like, look, guys, we have to bail on this tour we're so sorry. You know what I mean? We had to kind of explain, air out our dirty laundry about our management's mistake, the label's mistake to Killswitch, who were just like, yeah, shit happens. Sounds like you guys should get some new management and figure this out. We're like, yeah. And so that was the last tour we did before we took our break. We jumped back on a plane and flew back home that night. And that was the last time that we played a show as that lineup. You guys seem to be the sort of like nexus point for that, all that shit hitting the fan at the same time between, you know, the record sales, tanking, streaming, exploding, and then Vagrant having the rug pulled out from under them financially from, from Interscope. And it all sort of seems to like culminate with that record, <laughs> unfortunately. And that, that really sucks. I'm sorry you had to go through that. That's, um, oh, I, I know, but it's, just, it's like, you know, you hear so many horror stories of, of people in our, in our industry and it's just like, but that one, you didn't have any control over at all. It wasn't what you signed up for. It wasn't, you know, anything to do with you or the music that you make or the decisions that you make. It was just like, a, it was just a gut dealt. Yeah. I mean, that particular situation is. And then I also, like I said before, we were not smart with money. Same. We had accrued a debt that was our fault. Our manager that we had at the time, who I'm still friends with to this day, he was learning as he went. You know, we were the only, I think we were one of two bands that he managed and the other band wasn't doing the things that we were doing at the time. So he was learning as he went too. And it was just this kind of, I don't want to say toxic, but it wasn't a healthy 
situation to be in. And it really wasn't anyone's fault, but it, at the same time, it was everyone's fault that was involved because we weren't smart. You know what I mean? We didn't have good advice. Um, we, we weren't learning from mistakes. We weren't like putting everything that we needed into merch and realizing that oh, this is going to be your life's blood from now on because you can't count on record sales or guarantees. When you guys decide to take a, to take a, a break, what was Vagrant's reaction to that? I can't speak on that. I don't really know because like I said, we, we went home that night and that was just kind of it. I went back to my apartment the next day and I don't think I picked up my guitar for maybe a couple months. I didn't think about the blend. I got a job at a Hot Topic just because on the off chance that we, we got offered some crazy tour and the band is going to get back together. I knew that Hot Topic would let me leave. They were very, they are actually a, good, a company that really caters to their employees being musicians and taking time off and stuff like that. They won't just fire you for wanting to leave for four weeks. So I worked with them and I didn't, I just kind of, I kept it in the back of my mind as a hope that things would just kind of work out and I would get a call from our singer James or, or and say, hey, let's, let's talk to Ellis, our manager, or I'm sorry, our booking agent and see what we can do. But that never happened. We just kind of, I think um, we didn't really speak to one another for eight months, something like that. And um, so as far as what Vagrant felt about it, we were just kind of unhappy with the way that they handled us being in the studio. Whether it's their fault or not, it was a horrible situation to be put in to have McTurnan come in and explain to us, like, hey, I'm not getting paid for this. I just got a call from my manager saying that, you know, Vagrant's funds have been cut. And just have that awkward conversation and be like, yeah, we're four weeks into this record. What are we, what are we doing? He's like, I'm just going to finish the record and hope for the best as far as get me getting paid. So just stuff like that whenever, you know, when, when two years prior, Vagrant was at the height of this like upswing, you know, they were putting out great record after great record and all these incredible bands that were doing very well to all of a sudden, we can't afford to pay your producer we can't afford to promote the record that you just spent seven weeks in the studio making and there's no budget for you to tour. There's no nothing. So we didn't, at that point, we, we just didn't care what Vagrant thought. We were just like, we just need to, we were burnt out. The we, Like I said, I keep using that metaphor, but the wheels fell off the wagon and we were just dead in the water. We were just like, let's just take a break. We never said the words, let's break up. This is done. We we're saying, let's work. Let's try to pay off the debts that we have um, with nine to five jobs. And, and if and when things start to feel like they make sense to be the bled again, then, we'll, then that's what we'll do. So how did that relationship end then with Vagrant? James and I put the band back together, the singer and I. All the other members, the bass player, the other guitar player, and the drummer didn't want to come back. They were, you know, one of them had started college. Um, the drummer was getting really well-paid gigs with um, Gavin Rosdale from Bush being his like, okay. backup drummer. The other guitar player up and moved to Austin, Texas, he, and he's still there to this day. Um, and so we, James and I knew um, that we could still do the bled without those three members because James was the voice of the band and I wrote you know, 90% of the music. And so as long as it was my writing and his his voice with the band, we knew that we could put it back together with friends of ours. We didn't want to hire anyone or get outside help or have tryouts. We told ourselves, look, we'll put the band back together, but it has to be what it's always been. And that's five friends that enjoy making music with each other. 
And we knew enough comparable musicians that were as good as the other members that had left that we knew that we could put it back together with this lineup that we had kind of brought to, brought together. And uh, so when that happened, we called our manager at the time. We did stick with him, even though he kind of put us in that horrible position in, in the UK by sending us out there on the faith that Vagrant would come through without knowing that for sure. So Looker, Steve Looker, our manager, he calls Wayne from Vagrant and is like, hey, the Bled is going to do another record and they want to know if they can either be free or if you guys will make the record. And they, they let us go because I don't think they were back on their feet eight months later as being a strong record label again. So they let us go. I, I mean, that's, I guess, admirable on their part. I mean, to acknowledge that they were... Yeah, I think, you know, it wasn't a, a full, it wasn't a hard record that we owed them. It was an option. Though, you so know. they just decided to decline the option. Yeah, for sure. They they could have said no. We'll 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 keep you, but you have to do it a record under this budget and with a producer of our choice. You know, they didn't do any of that. They just said, yeah, you can go if you want to go. So we left. What happens after your after your break? But like, how did you you did one more record uh, not on Vagrant? No, not on Vagrant. Yeah. And then did it just kind of feel like it was after that? It was just time, or is it still is it still you open? Know, yeah. Is, or, um, so we. We got back together in, in the, the, I want to say, this, the, the early fall of 2008 with this new lineup. And we just kind of jumped back into it. Uh, we got a, a decent advance from the new record label. And we took that and we, we got the instruments that we needed. And, and we got a van that we got from a police auction for dirt cheap. And um, Ellis, our, our booking agent, just put us back on the road. And uh, it was almost like we never skipped a beat it was like oh here's the tour with the used again you you know we and we toured with them four or five times and we were lucky enough to have a band of that caliber and that size really like our band and 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 take us out you know and so there was that tour and then you know again we just kind of got caught up in the whirlwind for another couple of years and did the band full-time again uh until 2000 i want to say i think 2011 or 12 10? I don't know. One of those. I will say my, my, my big takeaway is that you were able to kind of get, get back on your feet after what is a, a, a horrible experience. And so that's, I think that that's, I think that's probably a good, a good thing to, to go out on just cause it's, it's, it's a really rare thing. Most people would be just completely like almost, I, I it's almost like it's commendable that you even tried it again. You know what I mean? Like such a, yeah. Well, I mean, we were in a situation where like, it was never my dream to work part-time at Hot Topic. You know what I mean? I, uh, and after doing the, the bled and doing it to the success that we did it to, it's very appealing to want to go back to that. You know, and same with, with James, our singer. He, he was, you know, doing odds and ends and, and not being on stage, I think, was a problem for him. He, he, you get addicted to it. You know what I mean? You get addicted to not just the attention, but the catharsis. Uh, especially I think the type of music that we play is so aggressive. The way that we are in real life is not, you know, very laid back, chill dudes. And so to have an outlet for that is very appealing to get on stage and throw our instruments around and get out this negative energy and have an outlet for that versus keeping it cooped up and bringing it to our nine to five jobs is a very appealing thing. And for that alone, I'm very grateful that I, I played heavy music.
Now we're going to tell the story of the Long Island, New York groups from autumn to ashes in biology with singer and sometimes drummer Francis Marks. From autumn to ashes, or FEDA for short, were one of the popularizers of the idea of combining beauty and brutality in the hardcore scene by having stark contrast of screaming and hardcore breakdowns juxtaposed with poppy vocal melodies. Here's Fran. So let's talk about the past. When did you guys start working with Vagrant? Been, uh, must have started talking late 2002 or something. And uh, I guess 2003 was our first official release together. Were you guys ever talking to Rich in a management capacity or was it just a, a label? It was just a label situation uh, because, well, for one thing, we kind of already were pretty well set up with a manager uh, before we came to the label. We were with uh, Corey Brennan and Irene Richter. We're working for a company called Sanctuary in New York at the time. And uh, as far as management goes, yeah, those two would have would have laid down in traffic for us, you know? Every, yeah, uh, totally. Just, they were really no matter what needed to be done, they would uh, go and, and above and beyond to make it happen. So we were never really looking to uh, part ways with them. But, but yeah, we did talk to, uh, I guess, Rich would have been uh, the guy who came out to the studio to meet us, actually. So he was the first fellow we really talked to over there. What was it about that label that like was attractive to you guys? Like, I mean, you were getting a lot of buzz. You guys were doing well already at the time. Like... What 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 was it about them as opposed to some other bigger label that was attractive to you? I have a one specific memory that because um, you know we were uh, talking to some bigger labels. I remember a guy from Ireland came to the studio up in uh, Vancouver. We were recording and we were pretty well into the process. Really, we had some rough mixes that, that uh, we were able to let him listen to and. I think he listened to it and he had, you know, he was interested, but he says, oh, uh, we don't know that you really have a radio single on here. Maybe write a couple more and get us a good single. We can mark it. And this was for the Fiction We Live record. The other thing he says, uh, can't understand what you're saying, you know, in, in regards to some of our vocals. <laughs> yeah, well, why don't you go back in there and uh, recut some of these vocals and uh, enunciate a little better so people can understand what you're saying. Was that like in the like kind of more screaming stuff he couldn't understand it or was it just in general? I think it was in reference to both, really. Yeah, it was uh, both both Ben and I he was talking about. And uh, so, you know, we didn't really, weren't that receptive to those uh, <laughs> criticisms. To that input? <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, you might say. Uh, we said, well, shit, I don't, I don't know that we were ever the type of band to write radio singles. It's If, if you happen to stumble upon one, go nuts. But no, we're not going to go back in and try to write you one on purpose. Vagrant didn't have that stance at all, really. Well, they had a fairly proven track record that they didn't need to be on the radio in order to make bands successful, you know, or help For bands sure, become successful. Yeah. And we were well familiar with the roster and, and there were plenty of bands on Vagrant we were already listening to, yours included for sure. Well, take mine out of it because that's just going to make me uncomfortable. But were you like, uh, were you fans of, of that stuff? Like the like saves and the trio and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah, and he, I mean the uh, the anniversary and and no one would have even uh, yeah I mean we were all we, you know it, I tell you what I, I I remember almost screwing the whole thing up really because uh, I think I when we first started talking about it I said I'm not sure and I, look I loved Vagrant um, 
and I loved plenty of bands that did not have full-on screaming and breakdowns in their in their content, you know? That said, I, I thought at the time that we were a little bit heavier than some of the stuff that had been on the label before, so my... My initial feeling wasn't wasn't against it. I just kind of wondered out loud. Well, I wonder if if the average fan of Vagrant Records looking for a certain type of thing, if it's going to be out of place us on the label. I mean, no was that was the future answer. But <laughs> I had a weird way of saying things sometimes, and I think it came across. I don't know how it came across. <laughs> but, well, I mean, you ended up still working with them, so I, I assume they didn't get too offended if you, <laughs> you know, if you. The- no, no, not at all. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was just a because uh, you know it was almost like labels had like a like a brand at the time of sorts. Like if you if you bought something released by like Ferret or Trustkill, I feel like you had a pretty good idea of what I it was going to sound like. I haven't thought about Trustkill in a decade. I mean, that's, yeah. first, that's wild. I forgot. I, mean, yeah, I totally forgot about. Like uh, they were, they were leading the charge for for that style of music. I'm gonna go time. dig up my very distribution catalog and look for Trustkill records in it. Yeah. <laughs> or the other big one for uh, Lumber. Do you remember Lumberjack Distro? Oh yeah, Lumberjack. Lumberjack was Dirk from Doghouse. He ended up buying it, which was part of the reason we stopped working with him because. He uh, only wanted to focus on the distro and not on the label. (laughs) Yeah, that don't work. Yeah, no kidding. I kind of, and tell me if this is true for you when you're talking about like the the other labels, like being like, oh, we don't hear a single or whatever, that it seems like Vagrant's relationship with their bands tended to be really like hands-off kind of in the creative sense of just kind of like, like it was, was that your experience your band's experience with them too? Yeah, I mean, yeah, unbelievably so, really. It's uh unbelievably so. Like incredibly supportive from a, from a creative standpoint, you know? You guys make the music and we'll handle distributing it, really. And they yeah, they gave you a long leash as to Has that been what we wanted to try to do? Has that been different than your experiences working with other I don't know exactly like what other labels you've worked with, but like working with other labels or other prod <clears throat> projects or anything. Yeah, I would say uh, by and large, most of my work has been with Vagrant, I guess. So, uh, so luckily, I didn't. You know, I, I think it was that we were kind of with uh, with Island, and it was obviously enticing at the time. You know, young guys getting that kind of attention, and uh, but yeah, I, I don't think it would have it would have worked out too well in the long run, really. But yeah, just incredible support from them. I mean, uh, as a fellow, I'm sure you know, Wayne really became more of a friend than a coworker or anything. Wayne, more than anybody, seemed to be the one who, like, especially with the kind of bands in your sort of graduating class, like, that were a little bit heavier than, like, you know, the bands that came before you on the label, Wayne seemed to be the one who was like really the true believer of that kind of stuff. Like I've talked to Buddy from Census Fail and the guys from Thrice and they're just like, yeah, Wayne's, Wayne's our guy, you know, assume that that. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. But really everybody over there. I mean, I used to go, uh, used to have the LA show and be able to go stop by the office there. And it was just, uh, what can you say? A uh, nurturing environment. You know, they really just supported us, and uh, there was no sort of negative pressure. It was it was great. It was a great time. It was 
tours they would do. I mean, heck, they had their own stage on the Warp Tour that one year, maybe 06 it was. We had a vagrant stage. Like, it was just a real sense of community in the label there, the vagrant across America tours and all that. So what was the first record you did with them was The Fiction We Live? Yeah, that's correct. And you were, were you saying before that you were making that record before you had found a label for it? Yeah, yeah. All, uh, all basically on the, on the support of the manager I mentioned earlier, if I remember correctly, you know, cause we just had a, a one album deal for our first one and the, our manager kind of saw things happening and he was like, I want to say that he might've put up the initial money to get us in the studio. I mean, we toured a lot and we, we set some savings aside and we put up some ourselves, but I think he put up the, a good chunk of the money to get us into the studio. And he said, let's get some things recorded and we can uh, shop around from there and see, see who's interested. I think that's like one of the best places you can be like kind of creatively is like, if you have the freedom to make something, but you don't have like, I mean like, to like make something that then you you can find whoever your partner is going to be that's like the most excited about that thing that you're doing. So I, I'm that makes me happy that you guys had that opportunity to to do it like that. So what was the reaction then? It's just like that record comes out on Vagrant, and then what touring, 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 worldwide domination? Like how does it go from that point? Yeah, you got the touring, touring part <laughs> right. I remember we uh, <laughs> we. Uh, so yeah, that was really the turning point that we we graduated to a bus full time because we we booked about three months solid with uh, it was our record release tour, which was still one of the better headliners. What a it was uh, Cave In and Every Time I Die were oh, on damn. it. And some uh, alternating, first of four alternated among a couple bands, but that was over a month. And that went straight into the Vagrant Across America tour with uh, Alkaline Trio, Reggie, and No Motive. And that was another six-weeker or something. It just, I mean, it just went on and on. But I think I saw you guys... at the time, that's how you got to do it. Yeah. I think I saw you guys play on that tour at Liberty Hall here in Lawrence um, with the trio and, and Reggie. I don't remember if No... Was No Motive on the whole tour? Uh, no, nah, they might, they might, somebody might've, uh, had the other half. I got to try to remember. They were on a good stretch of it. Who the heck else would have had that first slot though? No, they were on it. They might've been on the okay. whole thing. So like, what, what is your mindset at that point? Like going into like, cause you like, you know, you put this record out and it's, it's going well, you're on this label, it's going well. And you're, you're touring, touring, touring. Did you have to like make a conscious decision to stop to start working on the next record? Cause then at this point, were you guys still based out of New York at the time? Yeah, we were definitely based out of New York. Yeah. I remember, uh, cause I remember two of the fellows, Ben and Brian had their apartment. They were right on like, uh, I think 10th street between first and a or something. I remember them going on about how much rent their, their rent was at the time and they were never home. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say <laughs> that's in the apartment for one day a month or something. That's kind of a wild hustle to to like make enough money to afford a Manhattan apartment and then never be there. Yeah, no, I, it was it was wild. And I mean, look, it was fun uh, when we were home. It was, uh, you know, I got to go party there, but that wasn't my pro. I was living with my folks and uh, just trying to save, you know, I. We toured so much that I, I just felt like 
Ah, what are they? We're home for a week here, a week there. And uh, so, yeah, I went back and uh, was just staying at my folks' place between tours for as long as, as long as I possibly could. So when did you guys start uh, abandoning your friends? So that was kind of crazy because, yeah, we hadn't written anything. I mean, we were just... Uh, touring way too much and probably drinking way too much like you do i want to say we sort of got quarantined uh a funny term for today but we got sent up to a, a house in the catskills like hunter mountain area our, our manager was like all right you guys we had a studio in the city but the thought was it was just too too much distraction down there like too many too many friends and too many parties to be had so it says okay well we rented you guys this house in the mountains. It was really nice, actually, and just in the woods in the middle of nowhere. So you could set up. If you had an idea at four in the morning, you start wailing, and there was nobody there to complain about it. And it was, the thought was that we'd be far enough away from distractions, but that was a wild, wild time. And <laughs> We had, like, holy smokes, we had some parties in that place and <laughs> had our friends driving up. For, it was only a two-hour drive from New York, right, and there were spare yeah. bedrooms and everything, so it was... Uh, yeah, we had some fun up there. Sounds like the world's best manager. <laughs> Lent you money to start recording. Told you you need to go on a retreat up into the in the Catskills. I mean, that sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. No, if, if there's one point I got to get across, it's, yeah, Corey and Irene were really went the extra mile. That's and, amazing. Uh, I mean, somebody should have maybe stopped by there and made sure we weren't burning the place down. <laughs> Did you get work done while you were there? Or was it just, were you just partying the whole time? You know, we got a surprising amount of uh, actual songwriting done too. Okay. So um, where did you make that record? Did you make it upstate? That one's, no, we went back to um, Vancouver for that as well. Uh, Garth Richardson out in, he does a combination of things. He's got a home studio up in uh, Horseshoe Bay. It's called uh, Gibson's British Columbia. Really, really beautiful out that way. And uh, Really, one of my favorites. Uh, he used to do a thing where he would like track drums at a bigger studio in the city of Vancouver, and then you'd go out to the farmhouse and you would do everything else out there. So how long were you guys uh, out in Vancouver for that record? That one, I would say, that was a bit longer and that was a bit of a rough process because uh you know i said we were partying pretty hard up at the house and and actually getting work done but i think ben got a heck of a lot of work done up there really so the we didn't have a lot in the way of lyrics and vocal parts so we kind of didn't realize that until we were deep into it at the studio and that i would say that was uh if, if i got me some about that i, I would uh, we really should have just pulled the plug and went home and given the guy more time to uh to get his parts together but it's things were rolling you know that album i think had quite a bit bigger of a budget than the one before it and you're on a timeline it's not always i mean and, and you flew six guys <laughs> across the country it's it's not so easy to just like go home and take more time but we really should have regrouped given him more time to uh get his parts together but it was just nope we're here we're gonna finish this one way or another and uh and we kind of slugged through it and it, it you know unique situations make for a, a unique outcome and would have been a whole different album otherwise 
That one's weird for me. I actually just had to go back and listen to it because we got the test pressings for uh, for the vinyl that's going to be issued. And uh, it's it's just like a collection of songs, really, almost by two different bands. It's uh, and I realized that the, we had a we had a different guitar player at the time, John Cox, who was really on the heavier side of things, writing these like anthrax sounding riffs, and then Brian would write songs of his own that were on the more pop oriented side of things and uh they didn't intertwine as much they kind of sat on the album as as like projects really where they do you think it was perceived like it was perceived that way by the fans that it felt like maybe schizophrenic is too too strong of a word but that it was like a, a split between two different kind of songwriting styles yeah a bit a bit disjointed or something yeah i think okay. it was Later on, I think people really came around on on a lot of it, and uh, and strangely, if you if you go by reviews, uh, I, you know, I remember that one getting more favorably reviewed than the fiction we lived did, which uh, which certainly sold more copies, I'd say. But you never know. Uh, there's so many influencing factors in that. <clears throat> Those were the years that I think, in general, f- file sharing was becoming more of a of a mainstream thing, and yeah, that's something more that's. Were, starting to get iPods or something. So what year what year are we talking about right now? Like when you're probably 05 I would say. If I remember it right, we we had three albums there on Vagrant and they were on the odd years 357, you know, 2003, 2005 and 2007 were our, our three Vagrant releases. Did so you know 05 would have been the uh, the middle child there. Do you uh did you notice a big change in the in your guys's uh I guess, I don't know, I guess record sales or, and, or a change is kind of in the general, like zeitgeist of the, of the, the band's popularity and stuff when the file sharing thing became like a really prominent part of what was going on in the music industry. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would say so. And, uh, well, what was interesting and, uh, you know, I, I can't completely demonize it because a lot of people discover a lot of bands however they discover it i'm not gonna judge at this point in time but it's strange to you when you're going out touring and your shows have only gotten bigger you're you're drawing bigger crowds coming out to see you and those you get you know you get caught up in those uh, oh it's tuesday what's the sound scan which is just <laughs> you're better off you know just just going out enjoying yourself and not looking at any of that but you you get caught up in it and you're saying well what the hell why do our our numbers are are nothing compared to what they used to be but we're selling out bigger clubs and we're well it's because they're just getting the music for free and not you know not not buying the album did you guys talk to vagrant about that i mean did they have any was it just kind of like it is what it is like or was there like concern or was there like a a plan to like address it or anything like that or is it just throwing your hands up like i don't i don't really know what to even do right i think it was i think it ended up for a while throwing your hands up for the whole whole music industry there really um you know i don't feel like it was anything they were doing wrong and it kind of you know you're still getting the people at the shows and i i think there was a mentality of hopefully some folks didn't see anything wrong with it and some are like well i know i got this album for free so at the show i'm gonna buy a t-shirt or something so you saw a, a blip up your sales i think but as it that wasn't a you know i just remember seeing a lot of Dress for for record labels as a whole. I don't know if it was just us experiencing it. I think you know you you adapted. I mean, 
we had some lofty budgets for our first few albums, which in in hindsight, we could have, I mean, we had fun. Oh, man, did we have fun and we really spared no expense, but you know, you can, you can get it done for a lot less. And as uh, <laughs> we're all learning that now, our sales we? started to drop. That's what we did. Yeah. We just started like, okay, hold on a minute. Let's, so then let's going, remember the value of a dollar here. Yeah. Right. So then when you're going into your third record for them, was that like a cognizant thing of like, we're going to spend less money on this. We're going to like try and, yeah, yeah, for sure. That tighten just our belts as it across the entire record industry are, are down in general, and technology was changing every year. So you, there was no assumption you could work off of. It was just okay. We don't know how actual physical you know, CDs were primarily the, the instrument that we were selling music by. You didn't know how that was going to go. So yeah, you tried to tried to tighten it up uh, but even st- i mean that was we still did everything that we asked for for sure you know it <laughs> like vagrant always took care of us so that third record you did with nick turnin right yeah exactly. and, uh, when he had the when he had salad days in uh fells point in baltimore i got to go to the original one in uh the house in college park and uh man talk about a, a label being supportive like after we made that well, not that I, my dates are a little hazy but i don't think it was after i think it was concurrent around the same time we were making that abandon your friends album um i was just listening to a lot more indie rock and and you know things that weren't hardcore or metalcore whatever you want to call it and so i just asked them if i could make another album you know hey i want to do I got some other song ideas that wouldn't fit on a From Autumn to Ashes album. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> can I go, you know, can I go set up shop in uh, in Maryland with my buddies for a couple weeks? Yeah, sure. So I got to go make this album. Uh, oh, what was that? What was that album? Was that the... That was called uh, Biology. That's okay. That's what I thought. That's what I was going to ask. Because that was with you and uh, Josh Newton's on that record too, right? Yeah, Josh Newton, uh, Cornbread, or Matthew Compton. Uh, used to call him Cornbread. I don't think he goes by that too much anymore. So Cornbread's come up before, and then I know Josh He's Newton from boss, Kansas City. Man. He's a great dude and an amazing drummer. That's what I've been told. He's got a ridiculous name, but he's got a he's really a really good drummer. Uh, and then yeah, I yeah. <laughs> I know Josh Newton from when he was in bands in Kansas City, and so it's kind of interesting that there's that kind of connection there. But um, yeah, we met him on the we had, he was in our original bass player, and we he was playing bass for Reggie and the Full Effect on our first Vagrant Across America tour there. So, so I uh, was I was originally in that lineup of Reggie and the full effect. And I, it coincided with me doing a new Amsterdam's tour and I couldn't do both of them. So I told James I needed to leave Reggie and that's when he got Andy Jackson to, to fill in. And Josh was the bass player. Oh yeah. And Ryan was playing drums. I don't remember who else was in that band, but that was, that's like 2003. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. There was maybe a fellow named Corey who Oh yeah, yeah. Corey Corey Corey's the shredder. Corey was in like uh he's a full on like proper shredder. Uh he was in a band here called Esoteric that was yep, really good. Yep, I remember them. <laughs> Small world. So tell me about making the holding a wolf by the ears with McTurnan. Like what was that ex- like you did you make the biology record with Brian? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, heck, he, uh, he kind of played bass on it. Now that oh. I think about it, did Josh retract some of that stuff? We just, uh, you know, we had some ideas, but we didn't have finished songs and we went down and did pre-production and it was, uh, it was like me and Josh on guitar, cornbread on drums and McTurnan playing bass in the room. That's really cool. And that was just kind of a, like sort of sight unseen, like vagrant was cool with doing that just cause there, you were like, I just want to try this project kind of thing. Pretty much. I don't even know if I had demos. I'm, I don't know if I had a single damn demo and I just, I just had a whole lot of confidence and said I was wanted to make a record and, uh, and they had confidence in me, I guess, to, to set me loose and do it. <laughs> That's awesome. So you already had experience working with McTurnan and then, how was the making of that yeah. so that he, record? So he had moved to a new studio. He built this. I mean, the other, you know, the old one was cool, but then he got this like building in, in Fells Point in the Harbor of Baltimore there. And man, he made a, I don't know if he's, somebody told me he's not still doing it or maybe he sold it or something. I don't know. But uh, man, that was a beautiful studio and uh, just a great vibe working with that guy. I mean, he's, uh, he's really solid. And uh, he, if, if there's, Sometimes he he talked me into um, hitting some notes that I know I knew I'd never be able to hit again. On <laughs> you know, it's like a, just stand on your tippy toes and and hit it once, and uh, it's like oh man, I got to go out and do that live every night though. Yeah, but you can't think like that when you're in the studio. You got to think like what's I I've been doing. I do that all the time when we're writing now. It's just like oh, this song's gonna be brutal <laughs> to play live, but it sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, guy, I I said that to another. Uh, engineer once he wanted we were layering some things that would have been physically impossible to do live and I said I came with the old well how are we going to pull that off live and he looks at me and says well if your record's no good then nobody's going to come see you live so don't worry about that right now once again the one and only Brian McTurnan Okay, so Biology was Fran from From Autumn to Ashes. Oh, okay. Because you did one of their records too, right? Yes, I did. I did. Yeah, so Fran, what happened with Biology was Vagrant wanted Fran to make a solo record. This is my recollection of it. And I didn't didn't know him. And he ended up coming into the studio and he had some demos that were like, it just, it was like, like, I didn't feel like his, his voice and his writing catered to like this, like soft, mellow kind of, sensitive singer songwriter vibe so we decided to um to like write some tunes like full band and he ended up bringing josh newton and then i brought cornbread from engine down came to play drums who's like the best fucking drummer ever cornbread uh, cornbread compton and uh, i assume this is a nickname not his not his no yeah his real name is matthew compton but uh, okay he's he's literally one of the best drummers and super creative, um, super creative vibe. I can't remember. He's in a his new project. He does like soundtracks for movies and stuff. And then he's in this mega huge band with like 300 million plays of their new song. What's <laughs> yeah? So I'll, what's I'll, the I'll what's the story though with with I don't know a lot about Feta. They were, they were kind of part of that that wave that I, I I had already like kind of tapped out by the time they were getting big. But what's the deal with that? With like Fran was the drummer, wasn't he? Fran was the drummer. Yeah, but he sang. So like these two records can kind of get twisted together in some ways because basically the biology thing ended up being like I ended up playing bass on it. We kind of wrote a whole like the whole record as a group, and it turned into actually a. Band 
band that they went out and toured. It didn't become like Fran's solo record. But then Fran, after working with me on that, was like wanted me to do From Autumn to Ashes. They came to the studio and I think that like we had written a bunch of the biology stuff together. So Fran had a bunch of ideas, but also kind of thought we would write together. And so they came and we're writing a bunch of, they were writing music and, and their singer wasn't there. And I'm like, when's he going to show up? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> when's he going to show up? I don't know. And then he quit. Whoa. Like so while, while the, you were in the I, studio? I've, I've, I've never even met him. He, yeah, he just, <laughs> he just didn't show. He just, he just didn't show up. And then it was like, holy fuck, what are we going to do? And then I, I can't remember how it happened, but I think Fran talked to Rich Egan and Rich Egan was like, Fran, you should just sing, like just become the singer of the band. So we went and demoed a bunch of vocals over the, the tunes we had been writing and sent them to Vagrant. And they were like, yeah, man, just go for it. And that's what happened. So that, be- was, that was... That was a real fucking crazy situation to be in. And it was like, like when the singer didn't show up, I'm like, what's the deal? And Fran's like, oh, he doesn't write anyway. So it's, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like he'll, <laughs> get, he'll get here. And then he just never came. So that was a, that was a crazy one. So did the vocals just get completely rewritten for that record after the, after that guy quit or were the songs already? Yeah. Well, Fran, like it's been a while, but my understanding is that Fran wrote all the vocals already. Okay. Then the lyrics already. So it was, he just kind of took over. I think they always had like Fran did the clean vocals and they had another guy that did the screaming. And I okay. think once Fran realized he could also scream, it was, you know, it was cool. I really liked Fran, like from autumn to ashes is not like, isn't like traditionally a project that I would probably like be the perfect fit for, but we did get along really well when we did the biology and it just, it, it, it made sense. And we, we became pretty good friends. I haven't caught up with him in a while, but like, I only met him a couple of times kind of at like at shows, like they would play with Reggie in the full effect all the time. He's a, he's a real character. <laughs> yeah. And that was the impression that I got. It was like, he's a nice guy. He's kind of odd. And then there always seemed to be this like sense of drama around the band, like whether it was personal or, you know, yeah. whatever else. I just remember just kind of being like, what's uh, wrong uh, with these guys? <laughs> you know, like, what's one crazy thing I remember from making that from Autumn to Ashes record was one day at that point, I had moved my studio to Baltimore and I was, and one day there was this like knocking on the door, like we're recording the Fader record and I opened the door and there's like this 80 year old guy and it's like, is this a fucking recording studio? And I'm oh, like, wow. Yeah. And he's like, you got a fucking piano in here? And I'm like, yeah. And he just like <laughs> he came in and he's like starts playing the piano and he's like this amazing jazz piano player. And Fran walks in to introduce himself and the guy Gus pulls a joint out of his sock and hands it to Fran. Ew, out of his sock. <laughs> yeah, it was like some real weird situation. And then this dude started coming over like every day and would like cook for everybody and bring them weed and like... <laughs> have the guys back to his house and they'd like watch football and he'd cook for them. And he, I'll never forget. Fran went through this phase where he was like hopping trains <laughs> and he, sh- and he showed up at, he showed up in Baltimore. And I remember we went and had lunch with Gus. This turns out this Gus guy that was stopping by the piano player was a huge drug dealer. Got it. And when he died, they found 50 pounds of weed in his washing machine. <laughs> 50 pounds. 50 pounds. Oh, yeah. To hold. Yeah. And, uh, and, um, I remember he took Fran, he was really tight with the, some of the people that were involved with that show, the wire. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And Gus took Fran one day to lunch with like a bunch of those people. And it was pretty wild. But when Fran was in town hopping trains, I remember Gus gave Fran a big wad of money and was like, you got to take care of yourself on the road. (laughs) Like here's some walking walking around money. And we were like, what the fuck? This is really, that's what a strange, that's a unique (laughs) <laughs> unique but, but studio story. The, the crazy thing was he then started, he became a fixture with like every band, like every band loved Gus and he would show up at the studio and cook. And, um, I'll never forget. We, um, I don't know if you ever heard that band, the graduate. Did you ever hear that? Band? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I know, I know of them. I don't know that I, <laughs> so we, we were making that record and the label and Gus was hanging out with them all the time. And the label came down and went to take us all to dinner at this place in little Italy. And Gus had made the reservation for us and we walk in and the owner comes out and it's like says everything's on the house tonight wow and the dude from the label was like is it is this guy in the mob or like what the fuck is is it safe to be you know and i don't know ultimately what his deal was but he then died so he's no longer with us but he died and then they're like going through his house and they found 50 pounds Jesus of weed Christ. stuffed in the washing machine so yeah back to francis Interesting stories you remember about the label specifically or anybody there? Yeah, I mean, I remember we were just freshly signed to the label and just about to, we were had just dropped the fiction we live and we got on the vagrant across America tour and really, really nearly or not nearly. I mean, I think we did get kicked off the tour pretty early on, actually, and general out of control nature, I think <laughs> general mayhem. General mayhem, yeah, general drunken mayhem and uh, just causing trouble. And I think it might have had something to do with one of our guys said something not to the Alkaline Trio's uh, merch person. I don't think it was directed towards her, but it was within her earshot and she found it offensive. Heather, maybe? Heather, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the one who like designed all their old merch. Oh, yeah, yeah. She was, like, basically a member of the band. So, yeah, you don't piss her off. mm -hmm. No, no, no. But uh, she she probably wasn't in the wrong. It probably was something that was degrading in some way or, or, no, maybe not degrading, but certainly uh, objectifying of, uh, of women. It was, I don't know... I can't remember what the hell it was. Somebody hooked up with somebody and was retelling the story or whatever it was. She didn't like it. And that was enough that uh, they sent us packing right away. And I don't know if I think it was Rich or Wayne or they basically called the trio and were like, hey, we, you know, and I know these guys are rowdy, but we just signed them and we're trying to promote this record. Like, can't really have you kicking them off in the middle of the tour. So we got uh, we got we got to stay on the tour, but we were on uh, probation or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, have more than we need and work them into lyrics later. Did so, that work? Did that yeah, work for you guys? That. I mean, I I I, I had this old nineteen uh, forties Royal typewriter at the time. I brought that down to McTurnan's studio, and I was banging away on it every day. And we got to the point where. 
most of the music was dialed in and uh, we were ready to start tracking vocals. And so, uh, yeah, he was supposed to take the bus down. And one day it was, uh, hey, I missed my bus. Uh, okay, we'll get you another ticket. You, you got the 10 a.m. tomorrow. Next day came and we're down at the station and uh, he didn't get off the bus and just sent an email saying, you know, sorry, guys, I, I can't do this anymore. So I think we went straight to the bar. <laughs> we said, holy shit. Holy shit, I need a drink. I don't know what happened now. And there you are. You know, you're in the studio. You got the thing 80% recorded. And uh, we called Vagrant and said, well, here's the situation. You know, he's not, he needs out. He's not coming. And I don't remember who suggested it, but they basically told me this thing. And, uh, you know, if you're up for it, move up to the front and get a new drummer for touring. If you were comparing yourself to your peers, did you feel like you guys were dropping the ball in the vocal department with that stuff? Like that seems to be like a real thing we've seen in this. And like, what or do you did mean you by feel that? Like, like a lot of the bands did? Cause I, I knew a lot of bands on your guys style and I produced a lot of those bands and a lot of them would just put the vocals totally as an afterthought. How did you guys feel compared to other bands with that? You know, for the, for the holding a wolf album, it, I definitely wasn't an afterthought because it was really present in my mind that it was a problem the time before, but, but largely no, I mean, I was playing drums and I approach writing music definitely from the, from behind a drum set. If I'm not back there, things stop making sense really. Whose idea was it for you to start singing? You know, it might have been Wayne, and it actually might have been uh, Brian McTernan, because I was already doing scratch tracks, kind of trying to like prep some 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 vocal ideas for Ben to play with when he got there. And I think like McTernan liked the scratches. Yeah, I was trying to figure out how you would come to that conclusion of like, well, let's just have the drummer do it. You know, <laughs> like it just seems so like. But if you if you were doing scratch tracks and that that was already like kind of established, that makes sense. Did you ever want to be a singer? You know, I didn't like doing it from behind the, cause yeah, so I, I kind of sang the, the melodic stuff from behind the drum kit and it wasn't really an intention in the first place. I just, we, when we started the band, we knew we didn't want to have just all aggressive screaming vocals the whole time. We wanted to have some melodies in there and I don't know if I remember it right, but I feel like nobody else was just really up for doing it. I didn't so much see myself as a singer at the time, but it was just process of elimination. I, I wanted to hear some melodies in there, here and there. And uh, so I got a mic behind the kit. I never liked it because uh, no matter where you put the mic stand, it's always in your way. And I tried it with a headset mic for a long time, but then that thing's always in front of your mouth. So you're like going for it on the drums and you're short of breath and huffing and puffing and <laughs> trying to sing at the same time. The sweat is running off the bridge of your nose and filling up the mouthpiece of the mic, and it just sounds like you went underwater. Like, it was a... Everything I tried, it was a challenge. And so... I won't lie. The first time that I had a mic in my hand and wasn't behind the drum set, I went nuts. <laughs> Just was kind of unhinged and uh in a in a good way or a bad way yeah i mean i was just in the crowd the whole time hanging from the lights and so much adrenaline i blew my voice out in the first show i think <laughs> were you into it or did you like feel like pressured into going into that role because you're essentially kind of going from being not I don't think of drummers as being in the background, but you're not the front man. Then you're going to like being the front man. Like, was that a, a weird? Yeah, I would say you're, you're very right about that. Um, and it was fine while the music was happening. 
And then as soon as it stops and there's a crowd of people looking at me and I'm supposed to address them and say something, <laughs> I'm like, start the next song. What's going on here? You know, uh, where's my... Yeah, so I know I totally know what you mean. Or adjusting things, yeah, I don't know. It's I did feel a little naked at that point. Yeah, there's it's the element of like being a performer as opposed to just being someone in a band. You know what I mean? Like it's it's like you have to entertain the audience even between like you've already figured out how to like write songs that people would potentially like, and then you have to figure out what to do in between them. It's especially weird. Right. It's like, okay, say something clever. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and don't, I used to like leave notes on my set list or something. If I had to talk, but I'm like, all right, what, uh, sometimes it doesn't go so well when you're just spontaneous about it and you go off on a tangent. So what are you going to say here? <laughs> but it's uh man, it's like a four, you know, the, the, the drum set was like my fortress. It's like this wall of stuff in front of me and I'm in my own world back there. And yeah, I, I did that quite a bit. I totally relate to that. Like if I, even if I'm not playing guitar, I need to have a guitar if I'm going to sing in front of people. It's feel, it feels yeah. so <laughs> need one in your hands. <laughs> like this is becoming a thing now of just like uh, really focusing on just like, okay, my job is to, to sing. And so like, if like, I, I don't need to worry as much about my guitar playing. It's just like, I just need to focus on singing, but I can't just stand there with no guitar. That would be insane. Like, I just, I would feel totally awkward and naked and strange. So I totally understand that. I assume the drums are the same like, way. Where do I put my hands? I don't know. Right. Yeah, totally. Were you just full on front man at that point? And you guys hired a, a drummer for tour? We did. Yeah, we, uh... Did you play drums on any of the songs? This happening spur of the moment, really. We had a tour booked to Australia, and I don't think we even told the promoters what happened. We just showed up there with a different drummer. He was, uh, well, he played in a heavy band. Back. He used to play in a Connecticut band called In Pieces, and then... Uh, but at the time, he was playing in a band called uh, Bear Hands. They were like an indie rock band in uh, in Brooklyn. And so he just, yeah, we picked up our buddy TJ and we showed up in in Australia. And you know, some of the venues down there, they do two shows a day because they do all ages in the afternoon. And then you do a, an evening show where they serve for 18 and over, I think it was. So I had never done the, the screaming stuff live, you know, and we show up there and the first day there's two shows. And I got through it, kind of. <laughs> and then the second day, we go to do the afternoon. I mean, I woke up the second day and my throat was raw. And then we go to do the afternoon show and it was just gone after that. So then we had the, the evening show that was ridiculous. Who even got on stage and sang? I, I think I got back behind the drums, actually, for some of that because I couldn't sing at all. <laughs> we had uh, anybody, any of it. it was like tour managers all coming out. Uh, yeah, I've had I've like had shows like that. Our buddy, where yeah, whoever knows a single word, grab, grab the mic and sing. Uh, the whole crowd can sing. I don't care. We got nothing. I, that can be fun though, <laughs> you know. Like I mean, it's it's completely like nerve wracking as a singer to like you know that like kind of terror of of losing your voice, but that kind of communal sing along thing can be fun. Yeah, no, it was cool. It's kind of a fond memory now, but I'd gone to a vocal coach to show me how to, what, I mean, scream without screaming, but it just, I couldn't do it really. It came out sounding kind of fake and I just, just end up letting it rip. 
letting it rip till I got a headache and my face is bright red. <laughs> so how does that, I guess, so like you, you guys kept going on, like, but that was the last record you made for Vagrant was that one? Holding a Wolf? Yeah, we did, um, we did about, well, we did about two full years on that, I'd say full tour cycle. And, and I mean, actually that, you know, I, I still, uh, I'm real proud of that one. That was, a uh, not to say I'm not proud of the other ones, but, but that it was a shame, I guess, to split up after that. That was, that was a great record. And I got some, some buddies later on who, who tell me that, uh, that's their favorite one. And even we did some reunion shows and you'd think a lot of people coming out to the reunion shows only want to hear the really old shit, but we got some of the biggest crowd reactions playing those uh, "Holding a Wolf by the Ear" songs. So it's a bit my fault, I think, why we we did start writing another record, but it was uh, our newest guitar player, Rob Lawrence, and it was uh, just that we're writing it, and it was darker and kind of more. I'd love more doom elements, like doom metal sounding riffs and stuff. And I loved it, but I just didn't think uh, the title fit. You know, I was like, I don't know if this is a from Autumn to Ashes record, whatever that means. I just we made it. We made the record. It just we called it something else, and way fewer people seemed to pay attention to it on account of that. <laughs> uh, that was a record called Warship. That. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, we did that one. Uh, that was supposed to be because we had a new three album deal. Actually, I think I still got it in my. I don't throw anything away. I got a file cabinet here where I still got a copy of the contract in there. <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's not expired. I don't know. <laughs> but we were supposed to resign uh, another three album deal, and uh, well, I don't know. That was just the. That was just it, huh? Yep, it just uh I was out of steam. It's usually my fault really. I uh I don't know what it is. I I just get things could be like reaching their peak and going great and I get the urge to I'm like, "Ah, I don't want to do this anymore." <laughs> and then I pull the plug on it and then 6 months later it's like, "Well, what the fuck were you thinking? That was <laughs> that was crazy." Well, you know what? That's called being an artist. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. On our next episode, we will begin to tell the story of Vagrant working with two of the defining rock and roll bands of the last few decades, Rocket from the Crypt and The Hold Steady. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for Muse Formation and executive produced by Fred Feldman and Andrew Ellis. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode. <laughs>